Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the Technology Law Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Ward. This week, we're going to cover the building blocks, the ancillary documents you'll need to look at in reviewing an inbound cloud services agreement. A bit of background by me just to start. Once again, I'm a technology lawyer with my own practice here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I focus on helping buyers and sellers of technology services get their deals done quickly and efficiently. If you'd like to learn more about me or contact me for a project, uh, my website is www.jaywardlaw.com. That's www.jaywardlaw.com. Happy to help. Before we get started, I wanted to briefly mention that uh, a good friend of mine, David Tolan, uh, who's another technology law attorney, has written a new ebook called The Tech Indemnities Pocket Guide. It's a really good resource. I highly recommend it for people practicing in this space. It's published by the American Bar Association. And I think as of the date of this podcast, you can get it um, on Amazon for only 20 bucks. Uh, I'm a big believer in standardization and objective sort of um, references in terms of doing technology deals. And I think the more of us who get David's book and look at it as somewhat of a standard, uh, the more easily and quickly we can get through the risk mitigation terms of these technology agreements. And that's always a good thing. Our clients love it. So try to pick that up. The uh, Tech Indemnities Pocket Guide by David Tolan. So this week, we're going to be covering uh, the ancillary deals or ancillary documents you need in order to look at an inbound cloud services deal. And by inbound, I'm meaning I mean, you are representing the buyer and this, the vendor is sending services to you. So the deal is inbound to you. And oftentimes we're, as, as technology practitioners, faced with a circumstance with a, with a client or an internal business stakeholder comes to you and throws down an order form for some sort of cloud service. And we're requested, hey, can you take a look at this order form, make sure it's okay. And it really, that's just where the analysis of an inbound deal should get started. Oftentimes, the seven documents I'm going to reference here, in the in some case, maybe eight, uh, you aren't available to you and you can't get them. But ideally, where you can, getting these documents are really helpful in terms of analyzing the risk and business um, um, uh, terms of a cloud services uh, engagement. So these are really great to have. If I was designing a contract lifecycle management system for cloud deals, I would require these documents to be uh, input into the system before the review started. I think any prudent practitioner to the extent that they can should get these documents prior to starting legal review or certainly contemporaneous with the review. So let's get started. What are the seven documents? They are, first, a non-disclosure agreement or an NDA. Second, a service level agreement or SLA. Third, the data processing addendum or what's known as a DPA. And I have a separate show about this that I did with Todd Slack of Splunk. Check that out if you're interested in learning more about that specific document. The fourth document you should get is the privacy policy of the vendor. The fifth document is what's called the SOC 2 report. After that, a certificate of insurance is helpful. Then finally, the MSA, Master Services Agreement or Terms of Service should be looked at. 
You should have the order form for that specific cloud service if necessary. And finally, in the special case of critical vendors, you should see the business continuity plans. So let's go through the documents, what they are and what they do and why you should get them. Let's start with an NDA. This should be in place really at the start of every deal discussion. Uh, you should hopefully educate your clients that before they start discussing the specific terms of a, any sort of cloud engagement or technology engagement, engagement at all, the, the NDA should be in place. Most companies have them. Uh, I don't like to see unilateral NDAs. I think they just add an unnecessary negotiation cycle in terms of you know the vendor pushing back saying that it should be mutual it just adds time so oftentimes let's start with um getting out a mutual nda and for vendors put it in word form because i think buyers oftentimes can and should have potential changes to the nda form that should be considered so one of them that i really focus on is term uh, there are a lot of legacy NDAs out there that people have used without really reflecting on the practical uh, effectiveness that have 10-year terms uh, for the confidentiality window for the NDA, and that's not really practical. No one's going to be monitoring data six, seven years after an agreement is is uh, affected, particularly if the deal may have terminated after uh, two or three years. Um, for confidential information. So I think a more pragmatic approach is to have uh, NDA uh, confidential win confidentiality windows of three to five years. I think that's, that's very realistic. Another thing I like to adjust in NDAs is the definition of confidential information under the NDA. What I find is that the general NDA terms are somewhat um, vague in terms of what information is actually to be considered confidential information under the agreement. And it's a good practice if you know what information on the buyer side that you want to keep confidential, you want the vendor to keep confidential, specify it in the NDA and just make sure that the definition of confidential information specifically requires that. The next document that you should be looking at, looking at an inbound cloud services agreement is the service level agreement. This is a really, really critical document. I, I can't emphasize how important it is. A service level agreement is a document uh, normally put out by the vendor that makes commitments with respect to the performance of the cloud service. The most frequently met, uh, used, used metric is uptime. And oftentimes you'll see what's called five nines, that the uh, service will be up 99.999% of a given measuring period. Um, and that could be a month, it could be a quarter, it could be a week. It's really, really critical to assess what metrics are going to be measured and what sort of time frame or how are they going to measure that metric. So if you have, say, a vendor that's putting out only or only committing to say 95% uh, uptime during a month period, that's several hours per month that the vendor's service will not be available to you and you'll have no recourse to do anything about it. It's surprisingly common that a lot of vendors don't have SLAs. I, I, I'd say probably about 50% of the cloud deals that I do, the vendor hasn't put out an SLA and um, my clients oftentimes don't know to ask for them. 
if a vendor doesn't have an SLA out there, um, you need to be very specific in whatever contracting document that the vendor makes specific warranties or promises as to performance. Or you have to inform the client that you're not getting any sort of meaningful performance guarantee. Do you really want to go ahead with this deal and with this vendor and force the client to really consider whether or not they want to do the deal, knowing that the vendor has an easy out for non-performance. The best vendors, the Oracles, the AWSs, the Workdays, you know, they make their SLAs available online for anyone to, to get. Um, some vendors don't like to publish their SLAs publicly for competitive reasons, but uh, you're a business stakeholder, you should be able to ask your salesperson for the NDA, and, I'm sorry, the SLA, and be able to get it. Um, again, make sure your business stakeholders review the SLA and that any sort of critical service feature that they're requiring, any sort of critical performance aspect of the service has some sort of SLA guarantee in terms of what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. So um, for example, in a cloud situation, while everyone tends to focus on uptime, I also like to focus on latency. Um, which is the time between you send a command and the time that you get your results back. Now, some vendors push back on this because they can't control the speed of the internet, but they can um, make commitments and guarantees as to latency sort of adjusted for internet interruptions. So try to do that, uh, try to get that uh, focused on as you do your deal. The next document I think is critically important is a data processing addendum. Now, what is that? A data processing addendum is a document that vendors put out to help sellers realize or comply with their uh, data privacy and security obligations under European and US law and sometimes some other foreign laws. Uh, particularly the California Consumer Protection Act is a, one where the DPA terms are required to be reviewed. And um, these uh, are oftentimes the province of privacy experts. So if you're working in a situation where there is privacy counsel, make sure you get them the DPA. Um, but oftentimes, if you're the sole in-house attorney, you'll have to review the DPA and assess what they're doing or what the vendor is doing and, and how they're, they're doing it. Sometimes there can be a battle of forms uh, between the buyer and the seller in terms of whose DPA is going to be used. I have no problem with defaulting to most sellers' DPA forms as a best practice because, again, they're going to be performing the service. So I would rather, in terms of getting the deal done faster, take the seller's DPA and see if it meets my needs. Um, and if they're not, um, then adding it or revising it or having the candid discussion with the seller in terms of what the gap is between where my client, the buyer, needs to be and what they're offering. But certainly for any sort of vendor that's handling critical personal information, uh, you definitely want to make sure you've got a DPA, um, anything that's sort of consumer focused, and you should be able to assess uh, the gaps, if any, between the DPA the vendor is providing and um, what your compliance obligations are under European and U.S. law. Along those lines, uh, you definitely want to see uh, if the vendor has a privacy policy. What is it? How are they using data? Particularly um, what I call metadata, 
which is data about performance and other information regarding how your client may be using this service. Some vendors want to use um, aggregated data and an anonymized aggregated data for performance purposes or to measure performance. And I overall think that's fine as long as they're making the commitment that the information is aggregated and anonymized and can't be used uh, to identify a specific client. Um, having represented a lot of uh, uh, cloud services vendors, they run their platforms oftentimes on uh, uh, infrastructure services such as Amazon. And so it's helpful for them to be able to fine tune the performance and deliver better service if they can aggregate the information of all their customers, see what sort of information is moving well, what's not moving well, how to move performance. I haven't encountered a lot of vendors that um, use anonymized aggregated data for what I'd call nefarious purposes. So this tends to be, for me, a, a fairly easy give when in a privacy policy, the, the vendor uh, acknowledges that they have that type of information, they want to use it. The next document that I want to talk about is what's called a SOC 2. Um, and that's a really, really critical document. Developed by the American Institute of CPAs, a SOC 2 is actually an auditing procedure that ensures that a cloud vendor is managing customer data in according with, accordance with five what's called trust service principles, and that's security, availability, processing, integrity, confidentiality, and privacy. For me, any vendor that can't produce a SOC 2 report or some other third-party certification as sort of a, maybe an ISO certification should be avoided, plain and simple. For me, SOC 2 compliance is a minimal requirement when considering a cloud provider. Um, so basically, SOC 2 is a set of procedures that someone audits a vendor against, and then the SOC 2 report is intended to be able to be given to potential customers so we can make an assessment how well this vendor is uh, providing its service according to those five trust service principles. Um, it's not, I think in any given SOC 2 report, there may be gaps, there may be problems. Um, most of them I think are livable or survivable or you can work around. The worst thing is when a cloud service provider doesn't have a SOC 2 report or some sort of third-party certification from another source to provide you as a cloud services buyer. That's a huge red flag. Uh, and again, any vendor that can't provide um, a SOC 2 report, again, that, that in this day and age, in this world, that's a real red flag if the vendor can't provide one. Again, it's more meaningful to me that they provide one than what it necessarily says, but I, I obviously do want to review the SOC 2 report or hand that over to your security team so they can assess what the vulnerabilities or problems are, have a clear view of what they are before going into the deal and potentially uh, mitigating them before you go into the deal. Next document, certificate of insurance. Um, really easy. Any any business in this space should have insurance. And you know, again, this is another one of those documents where if the vendor can't provide one, that's a huge red flag. When I get a certificate of insurance, I, I, and again, these are things that should be produced in days after request or same day. The vendor's finance department should be able to provide it. Um, you want to look, um, first of all, in terms of the cyber coverage, uh, try to get a sense of what that number is. 
make sure it's there. And I find these certificates of insurance can be very helpful in risk mitigation negotiations. You know, we always sort of get stuck on limitation of liability and indemnification at the end of the deal. Um, if at the minimum, you should be able to use a certificate of insurance when you're representing a buyer to flip that back to the seller and say, hey, you know, you've got $1 million or $5 million of coverage for cyber events in your in your insurance. Why shouldn't we as the buyer be able to get full advantage of that in terms of the limitation of liability and the vendor's indemnification obligations? You may not be able to win on that point for a whole bunch of other reasons, but it's a great point to make. And a lot of vendors, I think, are amenable to going up to the limits of insurance uh, in their risk mitigation commitments. The next document, obviously, I think that should be looked at is what's called the Master Services Agreement or the Terms of Service. Uh, these could live online if it's a, a Terms of Service. Master Services Agreements are typically negotiated. And oftentimes, I think clients get confused between an order form and the terms of service. So oftentimes you'll have um, a, a business stakeholder hand you an order form and say, can you take a look at this contract? Well, the order form may often represent, may often uh, reference the terms of service. So you've got to take a look at those in addition to what's in the order form. Hopefully you'll have an MSA, a specific explicitly negotiated MSA with the vendor that's given you more favorable rights than what's on their standard terms of service, but these will have to be reviewed and um, potentially negotiated. Um, we'll cover MSAs more de in depth on, an, on another broadcast, but this is obviously in the pantheon of documents that you, you need to take a look at. After the MSA is the order form, and again, don't get confused. The order form is not necessarily con the contract. The MSA or the terms of service should um, govern the terms of the order form. So you make sure you've got both. Um, make sure if the order form doesn't make a reference to the MSA or terms of service that it does. Um, and again, if you have the leverage, try to get a negotiated deal with respect to preferred terms, but sometimes vendors have the leverage to just say, you know, we're, we're gonna go with what's in our terms of service. It's on this URL take it or leave it. And that that does happen. Finally, the last document that I'll suggest uh, be submitted for review is what's called the Business Continuity Plan or BCP. And this is in, in the case of critical vendors. You wanna know what their plans are in the event that they suffer some sort of an event like, oh, say a pandemic that inhibits their ability to operate could be a natural disaster, could be a terrorist attempt, whatever. You wanna make sure that they've uh, developed uh, plans for the continu continuation of the service if they're providing a critical service such as a payroll or maybe it's AWS and they've got their, your, your uh, operating your entire business off of their hosted platform. So definitely take a look at the business continuity plan. Make sure your engineering team and security team understand it and see it. Review it yourself for potential holes. Uh, but again, if this is going to be a critical vendor, make sure you ask for that document. That's it for this episode of the Technology Law Podcast. Uh, again, once, once again, I'm Jay Ward. 
Thanks again for listening, and I hope to get your attention in a future episode. Have a nice day.